we can turn together to Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3. I'll read the entire chapter. And Joshua arose early in the morning, and they removed from Shittim and came to Jordan, he and all the children of Israel and lots there before they passed over. And it came to pass after three days that the officers went through the host, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God and the priests of the Levites bearing it, then shall ye remove from your place and go after it, and ye shall be, and there shall be a space between you and it, about two thousand cubits by measure. Come not near unto it, that ye may know the way which ye must go. <coughs> For ye have not passed this way before unto. And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders amongst you. And Joshua spake unto the priest, saying, Take up the ark of the covenant, and pass over before the people. And they took up the ark of the covenant, and went before the people. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day I will begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that, as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. And thou shalt command the priests that bear the ark of the covenant, saying, When ye are come to the brink of the water of Jordan, ye shall stand still in Jordan. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come thither and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Hereby ye shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, and the Persesites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth passeth over before you unto Jordan. Now therefore take you twelve men out of the tribes of Israel, out of every man, out of every tribe a man. And it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand as an heap. And it came to pass, when the people removed their tents to pass over Jordan, and the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as they that bear the ark were come unto Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of the water, for Jordan overflowed all his banks at the all the time of harvest, that the waters came down from above stoot and rose up upon an heap very far from the city of Adam, that is beside Zaratan. And those came down, and those that came down towards the sea of the plain, even the salt sea, failed and were cut off. And the people passed over right against Jericho. And the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. <clears throat> so you remember last time we looked at the account of the two spies that had traveled to, jo uh, were sent out by Joshua and had been looking into particularly Jericho, that great bulwark of a city that was just a little bit across from the Jordan. And we noted that they have found a friend there, an unexpected friend in Jericho, Rahab. God had prepared her heart 
and an unlikely woman. She was a harlot, and uh, but she had helped them out, and she had hid them for a season, and also told the local police to look elsewhere, and also she had helped them escape out of the city wall where her house was. Not only that, she had also given them the good news that the whole city was very afraid. The language is that their heart had melted. They had panicked. They were struck with fear because they, of course, knew that the Israelites were across the river. God already had gone before them and made them in this panic uh, state. And so they were not able to fight even. He had disarmed them before they went there. And we saw that the main reason that the people were so afraid is because they recalled what God had done in the past. They recalled the, the crossing with, with Pharaoh, how he, how he had defeated um, the Pharaoh and all his armies and two cities on the way, how they were destroyed. And they could only see that it was a divine miracle and that no one could stand against the God of the Israelites. And we also looked at the faith of Rahab and how she proclaimed her faith in their God. There was a remarkable testimony of her. And with that good news, the spies have gone home to Joshua. And so in both these chapters, one and two, we see that God is protecting and providing and is giving victory to his people. And we see here that the very next day in verse one, God, Joshua prepares his people. And they start to move from the place where they were closer, from Shittim, closer to the, to the river in verse one there. So Joshua obeys quickly what he needs to do, and he prepares the nation for the crossing. He's not telling them yet what exactly is going to happen. Uh, the writer clearly makes you uh, kind of feel the suspense of the situation. And there they sit at the edge of the river for three days with their wives, their families, their animals, their luggage, whatever else they have, and uh, they're, they're standing there and see this raging river. And in verse 15, you see a little bit more information about this river, that it was overflowing at this time of the year. It was normally uh, not as wide, but the snow coming from the mountains in Lebanon and the spring rains would make this river much more treacherous and dangerous. It would be a wild raging stream. And it's interesting, isn't it, that God took this time not a month earlier, not a month later, or six months later, he took them this time to that river's edge. It would have been six months earlier that maybe they could have paddled over or walked across, and it would at least have looked a little bit less scary, but that was not the case. Normally this river would be anywhere from three to 15 feet deep, in certain sections, but now with this springtime snow and rains, it would be wider yet up to a mile. And those banks would be filled with brush and rocks and unevenness, caverns, so it was a dangerous river. At certain sections, it drops 40 feet per mile, about 10 feet gradually, uh, uh, if you take the whole river. So it was not a pleasant, calm river this time of the year, especially this time of the year. And yet God takes them at this very time. 
And here they camp and they look at this river for three full days. You wonder what they thought. They were promised the land a long time ago. Promises were made to Abram, to Isaac and Jacob, to Joseph. Remember, they have the bones of Joseph with them. <clears throat> and there was one more obstacle on their way into the promised land. And that during the daytime they would see it, and at night they would hear the roar as they sleep in their tents. Uh, they would have become very aware, I think that's why the Lord does it, of their own inability, of their own weaknesses. They as a nation had been there once before. They were very close by. They had almost entered the land. But the people believed the 12 spies, or the 10 spies rather, and they had reaped the consequences of their unbelief and their rebellion. And all those from 20 and over perished in the next 40 years. Talk about the seriousness of not believing God, isn't it? They had insulted his holiness, his goodness. He had led them all the way. They had insulted his steadfastness, his faithfulness. And in fact, they had told the Lord of all the earth, we don't believe you. We still don't believe you. And it came with disastrous results. <clears throat> but this new generation, as we saw in chapter 1, is, is different. They are more eager to obey God. We'll see later in Joshua. They're not perfect by any means. But they do trust Joshua, their leader. They had pledged allegiance to God and to him. And you also notice that with this group, as they are by the river there, there's no complaining. As many times that had happened with Moses when they saw Moses, when they saw a difficulty right away, they were up in arms, ready to kill him at times. So this is a different generation, a more faithful generation. And if we think about for a moment about that application, when it comes to the timing of the crossing of the river, how often don't we grumble or we fret about, you know, if I would have come here a month earlier or later, this or that would not have happened. If I would have moved a bit earlier, I would have had X, Y, Z, or if I would have met this girl or guy earlier, I would have been married to him or her and distrust God. How often do we forget the supreme sovereignty of God in our lives, even with those type of details? I think it was my father-in-law in our sermon, he said recently, he, God is the ultimate micromanager. You know, we don't like him when they, we have to work with micro, micromanagers at work, but God is a micromanager in our lives. We forget or tend to forget that the Lord is, Lord, is God over everything, and he will place us in situations that will require us to be patience, patient, that we can only get out with his help. To humble us, to make us aware of our own utter bankruptcy. And that counts especially when we come to know that we are sinners, isn't it? When first grace lights upon our mind, we see the tremendous chasm that is between us and a holy God. And we see that any efforts to save ourselves is, is fruitless. We cannot do it ourselves. Though many try. I prayed for the Catholics this morning, and there you've got an example of people trying to establish their own righteousness, their own 
letter to God, their own bridge to God, instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ralph Davis writes about this timing. This is a marked tendency in his ways. God delights to show his might in the face of our utter helplessness. Apparently, so that we cannot help seeing that we contribute nothing to our deliverance. Seeming delays are good for us and they build our faith. And we can look at them as as a, a means of grace that it could bear fruit in ourselves. Sometimes God allows this situation so that we can sing with the psalmist in Psalm 142.3. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knowest my path. In the way wherein I walked, have, I privily laid, have they privily laid a snare for me. I looked on my right hand and beheld there was no man there who would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. I cried unto the Lord. O Lord, I said, thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. What would this generation have been talking about when they sat there on the river at night in a campfire, the raging river in those three days? What would you have spoken about to your family, to your children? Well, it's not recorded for us. But I would think, as we looked at the earlier chapter, they would have recalled the great events of God in history. They were familiar with the manna. They had seen the pillar by night, the cloud during the day. They would have heard about the crossing of the Red Sea and all the other miracles that they had witnessed and that their forefathers have witnessed. Perhaps they recited the promises. Perhaps they looked at, at the, 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 uh, the box with Joseph's bones. And they would say, there, well, Joseph was promised. He was going to be in the homeland. We're almost there. And they would remind one another, we're this close. We're this close. We can see the promised land. <clears throat> God will not forsake the work that he starts. I think Paul often starts with that in his service. You know, God will never forsake the work of his hands. He doesn't leave something halfway. And Brother Dan spoke about it this morning. God preserves his people right until the end. He preserves his chosen. For sure, of course, the great event of the crossing would have been brought up. And perhaps they would have sung the song of Moses. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he grown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. He is my God. I will prepare him an habitation. My father's God. And I will exalt him. Pharaoh's chariots and his host. He hath cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned into the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sunk into the bottom as a stone. Thy right hand, thy right hand O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. In the greatness of thine excellency, thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee, against God, first of all. Thou sendest forth thy wrath, which consumed them as a stubble. So let us in ourselves, too, as we face difficulties, often recall the mercies of God to 
meditate upon his word, his promises, and find strength there. As a believer, we can look, you're a believer, we can look to the great work of Christ and the greatest rescues that he has performed. When we are faced with trials and difficulties, snares, setbacks, we can look back and preach to ourselves what the apostle said in Romans 8:31. Who shall what what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that has spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, shall he not with him also freely give all things? His giving his son is a proof that he will give us all things that we need. Well, maybe that we want, but that he needs. This is an argument from, from the greater to the less. He that has given the greater gift would not hold the less when we need it. Notice that Joshua tell him not at first what is going to happen. He told them after three days, slowly, as they had looked and pondered their difficulty for a bit. <clears throat> faith, faith moves ahead, even though we don't know all the details what, has, what is coming next or how it will be done. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Verse 3, Joshua gives the people the instruction they have been waiting for, and this involves the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. And it's a very central theme in this chapter in, in, about the crossing. Many times we read about it in this chapter and the next, and the Israelites were not to lose sight of it. They had to keep their eye on it. And the writer tells us to not lose sight of it either. They had to keep their eyes fixed on it and the priest that carried it with, with the poles, the rings, were not able to touch it. The ark was that gold-covered box. Inside there were the tablets of stones, Ten Commandments. There was a jar of, of manna. There was the um, rod that budded from Aaron. <clears throat> it was given to Israel in the wilderness as a symbol and object of God's present and nearness, presence and nearness. They had gone, it had gone everywhere they had went. Aaron's rod reminded them of the miracles of God previously. It was the staff that brought the plagues of the, the frogs and the, the gnats into Egypt. It also had, when the, the pharaoh's magicians turned their uh, sticks into snakes. It had ate all the snakes of the, the pharaoh. And this was the same staff that had budded and flowered and bore fruit, proving to the people when they were grumbling about leadership issues that Aaron was one of the chosen leaders. You can find that account in number 17. Manna, of course, reminded them of the daily provision that the Lord had given them all along the way. It was now starting to fall less, or maybe not at all. It would come to an end in the, in the, in the promised land. But for all those time, fresh manna had been falling from heaven six days a week. And the Ten Commandments reminded them of the holiness of God and of his covenant with his people. <clears throat> also on the ark, of course, was that mercy seat above the tablets of stone. There on that mercy seat, the blood would be sprinkled once a year in that great 
Day of Atonement. Of course, the mercy seat is a great picture of what Christ would do in the future, the once for all atonement for sin. And when you see the priest starting to carry it, Joshua said, then and only then saw you go after them. Verse 4 tells us that there was about 2,000 cubic, um, there should have been about 2,000 cubic um, cubits between them. Cubit is about 50 centimeters, so roughly a kilometer. The reason for this was firstly that the people could clearly see what was happening. If they all would crowd right behind it, uh, they were not able to see the, 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 the miracle properly, and it would be uh, kind of dangerous too with the crowd. And, um, but also that they would stay away in a proper distance from the ark. You recall the incident with the with Azza later on, who thought that he could quickly um, rectify the, the ark falling, and he was killed. And we find similar instructions in the rest of the Old Testament when it comes to the ark. Sinners cannot carelessly approach the ark or the presence of God. He reminds them that they have not passed this way before. This was new. This was a new generation. And to keep their eyes on the ark and all that it represents. Look at the ark, not at the waters that will be piling up. And here we see that God leads his people. He leads and he goes before them and they follow. And we too, right? Every day we stand before a new day. It's an uncharted road. We don't know what a day will bring. It is important to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, as Paul writes in Hebrews. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he, with have begun a good work in you, will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. Israel has been promised the land. They would have it. It was theirs already. We saw that in chapter 1. And so, as believers, knowing that Christ has started a work in us, we can be certain that he will guide and lead us through all our Jordans and difficulties. He'll lead us home. And I think uh, Brother Dan spoke uh, greatly about that, that preserving mercy of the Lord. None of us could otherwise make it. If it was up to us or, or we could never make it. We would fall on the first day. If it wasn't by his grace that he gives to us. Verse 5, <clears throat> Joshua tells the people to sanctify themselves, make yourself ready for the great wonder what is about to take place. God often used great miracles in, in when a new era started. You think of the church, you think of giving of the law, you think of the exiting out of Egypt, and afterwards things would go to normal again. And they had to use normal human methods to carry out their lives. And we don't read here, uh, we don't read his account to get our own personal miracle every day, but it teaches us a great deal about God and his faithfulness to his people. Elsewhere in Exodus, when it talks about purifying and speaks about the purification to wash one's clothes, to abstain from their wives, that was an external purity but it would be a reminder of them to look inside for their spiritual well-being. 
No doubt this meant the putting away of sin, repenting of it. God shows himself mightily to his people when they're focused on him and when they're free from sin. Think of the great revivals in history that had happened. What the churches do, they came together, they prayed, they repented, they meditated on his word, they focused on God. <clears throat> they were told to separate themselves from common things, that they could focus on the Lord, and that they would derive much benefit and wonder from the great event that is about to take place. Similarly, James says, draw nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Without holiness, no man can see the Lord. They were not to rush into this unprepared. The wonder was meant to leave them with a lasting impression for them and for generations to follow, and they had to prepare for it. Hebrews 12, verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with a great cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and sin that so easily beset us. And, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Paul tells us in Romans 8 to mortify the flesh by the spirit. Uh, and that work ultimately is the work of the Holy Spirit, of course. And, uh, and when Christ is in us, in 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul writes, But of him ye are in Christ Jesus, who is, who of God is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. We have all those things in Christ, but yet we do need to work on our sanctification with the help of the Spirit. Next week we have the Lord's Supper. Prepare for it beforehand. Think about it. Think about the blood that was sprinkled on the heavenly mercy seat. Repent. You need to repent beforehand and prepare yourself for it. Even the, the weekly Lord's Day service, sometimes we can rush in and out of it like we're going to Walmart, but do we prepare for it? Do we honor the Lord in it? Do we expect to hear from God by the preaching of the word, by the reading of his word? Do we expect to be convicted by it? Or do we rush into it without preparation, without any seriousness? Verses 6 and 8. <clears throat> Joshua now instructs the priest to pick up the ark and pass by and before the people. Imagine the suspense that now is happening in the camp. <clears throat> and all the people were watching what God was about to do. In verse 7, we notice that Joshua re receives another promise from the Lord. That as God had been with Moses, so he would be with Joshua. And he had received that assurance before. But Joshua, perhaps, and the people in particular, were prone to doubt, as we've seen in the past, they needed another token, and Joshua as well. As Moses had been there in the Red Sea, now also Joshua, the new leader, was going to be here in this instance. Hereby, his position as a leader is, is strengthened, and he is encouraged. It would be very vital for all the battles that lie ahead that the people had a trust in their leader. Without a trust in a leader, battles are lost before they, they start. <clears throat> 
Joshua needed the trust of his people, and this would seal it for all to see. And it was there that God put his stamp of approval on Joshua. Just like the New Testament, the apostles, where many miracles accompanied them, and they were approved in the sight of people. Then as a good leader and general, with the priest standing there, Joshua preaches to them, gives them reassurance. He gives them hope. He gives them faith. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. He shows himself a great leader. He points the people to God and not to himself. He points them to God's wise counsel and God's words and not his own wisdom. And, and says, come and hear the, the Lord and the word of the Lord, your God, the living God. He says, the living God, a term is used a few times, who is the beginning and the end, the author of life and governs all creation. And he puts that in contrast with all the nations that they're about to enter as they cross the river. He knows they all have the same concern on their mind. The Jordan before them and the nations on the other side. He tells them first what will happen to the nations across the raging river. They'll be driven out without fail. Remember in Deuteronomy 7 verse 1, those seven nations, it said they were greater and mightier than Israel. Another indication that they could only go there with the help of the Lord. And judgment was predicted earlier about what would happen to these godless, wicked, occultic nations. Their wickedness had been filled up. And just as Egypt has been dealt with earlier, so they would also be dealt with by God. And driving out these nations would also be accompanied by great miracles. Think of the Battle of Jericho and regular battles where they had to fight but it would further encourage them to trust in God and to look to him for strength. Verse 11, he exhorts them to see the ark of the Lord and all that has come to represent for them in these years that have been passed. He adds that title again, the Lord of all the earth. He's the Lord over creation, over the sea, over the rivers. And at his command, they stop or stand on a heap who or what can stand against him is the Lord for us he talks to them were not the disciples also not amazed when the God man the Lord Jesus showed his power over nature and when he calmed the raging sea when he did that Matthew 8 27 but the men marveled saying what manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him our Lord Jesus is the creator of heaven and earth by him all things are held up and they're held up by the word of his power and we now have that reality of what the ark pointed to Hebrews 12 2 looking unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We ought to look 
to him. Verse 12, we are told that there were 12 men picked from every tribe. Uh, we're not told here what purpose. He de- deals with that in a, in a, in a later chapter. Uh, they were picked out for service that they were to do, and those orders would come later. Verse 13, finally, Joshua tells him at last the details of the miracle that was about to happen to the nation, which he had received from divine revelation from God. Another evidence that when it came to pass that he had been exalted amongst the people. What he said happened would happen. As nobody without revelation could predict the miracles of God beforehand. He tells him as soon as the priests hit the water that come from downstream, they would stand upon a heap. And the power of God would heap the water up into a great wall. On the other side, the water would flow away. Not the winds this time, as we saw in, uh, earlier in, in the Red Sea. Nothing could be here attributed to chance or luck or a sudden weather phenomena. It was the mighty hand of God. Verse 14, the camp broke up. And as they see the priest bearing the ark. And just as Joshua has said so, so it happened. These brave priests, trusting the word of God, spoken earlier, by faith moved ahead and kept on walking. They put their feet into the water. Then and only then, the water stood still on a heap, and the dry land appeared. Standing close to the edge did not do it. They had to step in just as they were commanded. Kent Hughes is right. The greater the obstacle that faith encounters, the greater is the victory and assurance that come from continuing to act in trust and obedience. And there they stood, firmly, unfaltering, steady, planted with the ark in that dry riverbed. Notice it was dry, it wasn't muddy, it wasn't wet, it was dry, making it past its easy for all of Israel. And they were able to pass the Jordan into the promised land. <clears throat> a great heap or hill or mount of water formed on the one side and it was ha- held by the will of God. Imagine being near the end as the water started to pile up. You look at this water and you saw this tremendous miracle and spectacular display of God's power that only the creator could do. Who, all, who holds all things in the power of his hands. And there was also a very large section from the city of Adam to where they were, some say about 10 to 15 miles or more. And the writer wants you to know that it was not just a lucky break, but it was a miracle. And there was plenty of room for people to pass. Remember, we're talking about a million people or more here perhaps, so it wasn't just a small little opening. There was a wide opening they would go through. The ark had gone ahead of them. The Lord had gone ahead of them and was with them. And all of Israel would pass it. The priests would stand in the middle until everybody had passed. And God brings his people home, all of them. And none of them were left behind. He reminded the nation that it was God and God alone who does unmistakable wonders. And at last, through this miracle, they had entered into the promised land. 
He had taken them through the waters into the land long ago promised. He had been the Alpha and the Omega of this journey. He started them, he took them out in Egypt, and now, at last, they were here in the promised land. You can imagine the local folks from Jericho, the police that have been trying to catch them. If they saw this great multitude coming across the water departing, if they had been scared previously about something they heard that had happened 40 years ago, imagine how they felt now when they saw all these people crossing in a miraculous way the river. Here, here he does it again, they probably would have said to one another. Perhaps there was Rahab looking at this miracle as well. Speculation. God had separated the waters earlier in Genesis 1. He had made dry land appear to create a paradise for Adam and Eve, our first parents. And again in Exodus, he made dry land appear for the people to escape the wrath of Pharaoh. And once again, he showed his power and a token of mercy and grace here to the people as they enter into the promised land. What he had promised, he fulfilled by action and by power. Another story they could tell their children and grandchildren in the next chapter deals with memorializing this great event. They indeed once again had seen that it was the living God, the God of all the earth that was working amongst them. With him no obstacle is too difficult, surprising or insurmountable. Notice <clears throat> that this was done to an undeserving people. Lots of examples are recorded for us in those first five books but all their disobedience and their sins and their backslidings, they had nothing, they had done nothing to deserve it. It was all of grace and of the goodness of God as he had made a people for himself. He works out all things after the counsel of his own will for his own glory in his good pleasure and for his own sake. The date of the crossing was according to Joshua 4:19, the tenth day of the first month. That is the same date that, according to Exodus 12, verse 3, that the Passover lamb was brought into the home to be kept there, and four days later was to be slaughtered. It had been 40 years minus five days since they had left Egypt, and they would keep their first Passover in Canaan, close to Jericho. The Lord had been present with them in various ways, but most clearly represented here in the ark with that mercy seat, with that great picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the portable throne of God. According to Exodus 25:22, he had said, There I will meet with thee, and I'll commune with thee from above the mercy seat. God, Joshua showed the people that God was in their midst and he would lead the way. And only because of that could they enter into the land via the Jordan and later conquer the land. No man would give any credit, only the power and the grace and the goodness of God. And of course, the Passover 
lamb, and the ark pointed yet to a greater glory, the glory of the only begotten son who tabernacled amongst us. He is the ultimate ark. He is the one that the ark pointed to, Emmanuel, God with us and in the believer. It pointed to the one that would take to himself the bone of our bone and the flesh of our flesh. He is the one that can save people. He is the one that can save people from what alienates them from God, and that is their sin. And just as the people were separated from entering uh, the land, if they did not believe it, God will not, is, is, won't save us if we don't go to his appointed way. And just as Israel would not have entered into the land, sorry, I'm mixing up my sentences here, if they had disobeyed the word of the Lord or somehow found another way, maybe a bridge or a boat or going downstream or waited for a more favorable moment, better time, they would not have entered in. And so it is with the gospel for us. There's one appointed way. There's one way only. And now is the appointed time to flee to Christ, whose blood was applied on that heavenly mercy seat to make a way open for us to come to God by him. No one comes closer than God than Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus. His blood bridges the great gulf between us and a holy God. The great shepherd of the sheep has gone before us. Have you heard his voice? Have you obeyed the gospel and gone to him for rescue? I'd like to close, and if you could turn there with me, to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. A great passage where Paul gives us the gospel in a nutshell, and where he urges people to be reconciled to God as he is an ambassador for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though Christ, through God, did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ that be ye reconciled to God, who hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that throughout all your word, you have proven yourself to be faithful to your people, especially in this book. You lead your people, you take them home. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for that glorious gospel, the freeness of the gospel, Lord, that we look to him, if we go to him, we're cleansed from our sin. Father, I pray that anyone here who does not have that assurance that they would look and be saved. Father, we thank you as we are, when we are believers, that we know that you will take us home and through all life's journey, Lord, and difficulties, you'll be there and help us to 
trust in you in all those circumstances that you put on our road. In Jesus' great name we pray.